Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from AP. Ah, uh, Kyle Bradford from Stratton. PTA. Hi, this is Andy Newell. Hi, everyone. My name is Antoine C. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. First of all, excuse me, wax. Yep. It's made with bits of real panther. So you know it's good. You gotta have paraffin ironed onto it once in a while. And you're going to have the scrapes. They've done studies, you know. Oh, good for you! And how was it? Uh, race was good. It was, um, felt good in qualification. Uh, sun came out, it wasn't too chilly. So we're happy about that. Great conditions, the snow held up. That does make sense. Get some fast. Get the back and see. I, I guess a big part of it is just that I really like these students, you know, and I, um, I just think that I just really enjoy spending time with them and working with them. I think they're just such great people, and... Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist. On the show with us today, Nathan Alsobrook. That's the head coach of Bowden Skiing. Bowden has steadily, year after year, been climbing the ranks of the competitive EISA Conference. This year, they finished in the top three in Nordic Carnival scoring in four races. They repeated as Chummy Cup champs, and they qualified five of a possible six skiers to NCAAs. It was a successful season, no doubt, and Nathan is a large reason for that success. He's been at the helm since 2007, and each year has worked to build and foster a culture where student-athletes are cared about as people first, while they define and pursue a gratifying and enriching collegiate experience. And as you can tell from the quote we just played, Nathan genuinely enjoys building relationships with students and spending time with them. In this interview, we went all the way back to his thesis days at MSU Bozeman. Uh, his thesis was a topic on an earlier show, and so you scientific nerds are going to really enjoy the discussion on its development, its implications, relationship to our study. Uh, and we also talked about his road in coaching, and it was a long and winding road, but he learned a lot from it, and he'll talk all about that. You can tell right away that Nathan is someone who is constantly learning and evaluating as he perfects his coaching craft. Uh, he's just so humble, kind, uh, but also very thoughtful and analytical. His answers uh, contain tons of gold nuggets. So uh, I, I hope you enjoyed the conversation, uh, the interview as much as I enjoyed the conversation. You know, last year I was a young first year coach on the EISA circuit and Nathan was the only guy who went out of his way to make sure I and our team was fully taken care of at each stop on the carnival circuit. So his character is just top notch. Uh, you know, Maine, uh, that's where Bowden is, Maine's slogan is the way life should be. And in my opinion, uh, I think an appropriate title for this show might be, you know, this is the way college skiing should be. Because you could talk, uh, after listening to this, that, that's certainly what you could think. Uh, I think after listening to this sit down, you'll agree. So I thought of splitting this into two shows, but our conversation just kind of so organically went from one topic to the next. We decided to keep it as one, and we'll just skip some of our typical beginning show antics. So no letters, sorry, no complaints, no topics, no hypotheticals. Uh, so here it is, Nathan Alsobrook. And be sure to listen to the very end as well. Uh, Nathan gives some awesome topics, awesome takes on topics like uh, the U.S. Collegiate Ski Association and its importance to our country's ski pipeline, as well as uh, World Cup takes and the future of men's skiing and, and much more. So here you go. Hope you enjoy. Well, anyway, I, the, you know, we've got you on here because we, we want to pick your brain about all things skiing and, and we're going to get into talking about everything from, yeah. from your work, uh, your master's thesis about double polling. Um, we've had other shows, kind of similar topics. And then also, 
you know, just uh, how your year went, but we got to go all the way back. So <laughs> we want to get to know you a little more. Okay. So let's start all the way at the beginning. What, uh, were, what were your earliest athletic experience as a child and when and where did you start skiing? Who taught you? How did it all begin? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I came to skiing a little bit later than, than a lot of folks. I, um, as a kid, then I just did the usual kid stuff, tearing around outdoors, riding bikes and exploring the woods and, um, you know, like I loved kickball and like capture the flag and all that stuff, you know, always loved gym class and being active and super, you know, very competitive, but, um, didn't find my way into organized sports until I was, you know, 10 or 12, which, you know, just all the usual, like, you know, little league and basketball and stuff like that. Um, I loved all of that stuff. Um, and was always playing sports with, you know, with brother, my cousins, you know, friends, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, skiing, I, um, you know, I, didn't get into that till I was 16. Um, my friends, I had two good friends who were on the ski team and they had a pretty small team and they just needed a fourth guy so they could have a score. You know, I grew up in Northern Vermont and that's sort of the way Vermont skiing works or at least did when I was a kid. So, so yeah, they had three guys they needed a fourth. They pestered me, you know, cause I was on the running team and I played soccer with them and stuff. Yeah. Um, they just pestered me until I decided to give it a try. You know, I kind of struck out <laughs> at basketball by that point in my high school career. Um, that that wasn't really happening. And so I was like, okay, so now I'm going to try something totally new. And it was pretty far outside my comfort zone because I'm a pretty cautious guy and I never was great about putting myself out there to try new things when I was a teenager. But, um, you know, I just had these two buddies who were really good friends and they were just like stubborn as hell and would not take no for an answer. And finally it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, this will keep me in shape for track season in the spring. So I guess I'll give it a try. And right. you know, just absolutely loved it. Had loved the team, had a great coach, um, just loved the whole experience. And was just very lucky to, uh, to be in an environment where that was a really fun experience for me. And it obviously became, you know, really kind of like a cornerstone of my life at that point. How did you go? I mean, you must've been fa- fairly talented. Cause I was gonna say, how, how'd you go from starting at 16 <laughs> to, you know, where you ended up now, I guess, like, was your progression really quick or did, did you really struggle? Like how, how did, how did your improvement go from starting at 16? To, did you race collegiately too? I, I don't know if I had asked you that. Yeah. Yeah. No, man. Well, you're, you're, uh, you're way too kind. You're overestimating my ability significantly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I was, you know, pretty bad my first year of skiing as a junior in high school and, you know, um, had some aerobic talent and some athletic background, but really nothing, you know, nothing too different from you'd expect from a rookie on skis. And, you know, um, senior year I became a little bit better and, and then, you know, went to, to Bowdoin the next year in the mid-90s um, as a first year. And then, of course, like just as I was starting to feel like I knew what I was doing on skis, then you go to the collegiate level and, like, so, so blown away by how much faster everyone was so um so i was right back at the beginning and i was just absolutely terrible as the first year in college just really quite quite bad um but you know learned a ton had fun made great friends on the team and you know honestly i just i never became a super good skier i worked my way up from being like back of the pack as a first year to being like you know i was kind of a mid-pack guy by the time i was a senior but never really became anything better than an average college skier um at best so so yeah, I mean, and I'm just, I ended up where I am because fortunately you don't have to be a great skier to be a stressful coach. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I really loved skiing and enjoyed it and never had like a super competitive career trajectory, but you know, really poured myself into it. And when I was done with college, I just wanted so much to, to stay in the sport and keep learning and keep being part of it all. So I was lucky to, <clears throat> to find my way into coaching after, 
after a couple of years. And you talk about having, you know, a good team you're on, good coaching at Bowdoin. That was with Marty Hall was the coach, right, at that time? Well, actually, I um, I was there pre-Marty. Um, okay, okay. It was kind of uh, in a transition phase there. Bowdoin had, you know, just become a varsity team a, a little while before I got there, and it was still very still very club-like um, in terms of just not a ton of resources in the 90s and so forth. And we had a part-time coach. His name was Bill Yo. Um, and he was just like fantastic. You know, he was getting paid next to nothing, but he had so much energy and so much passion and just absolutely loved it. And, and he really instilled that in us. He's honestly one of the, one of the reasons why I'm a coach because he just instilled so much love for the sport, for training, for being outdoors in me. And that just was, um, that just made skiing so much fun. In addition to just like having this great group of friends on the team. So, um, so yeah, he, he did a fantastic job of sort of like helping us gain confidence in ourselves and helping us really love the sport. And, um, you know, I graduated and a couple of years later, Marty took over and he really just sort of launched it from there, just sort of fighting for more resources and professionalizing the program a little bit and just building on what Bill had done, um, in the nineties. And he obviously laid down a pretty good foundation for me to take over when it was my time. Wow. That's interesting. So you said his name, Bill was the guy who was coaching before Marty. What was his background in, like, ski yeah, yeah. racing? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, Bill, he's, he's sort of like an all-purpose, like, outdoor adventure guy. He, uh, you know, he had done all kinds of sports, including ski racing in high school. Um, and since then had just sort of transitioned into this career. He you know, he works, still works at L. Bean, but, you know, he was working at L. Bean at the time, and he um, he does all kinds of, like, or did all kinds of adventures. And I mean, he was, a, he was bike racing, he was, you know, climbing, rock climbing, he was climbing huge mountains, you know, um, he had done all kinds of stuff, he'd been all over the world doing adventures, um, you know, and sort of interspersing that with, like, you know, coming back, working at L.B. and did a lot of product testing for them, I mean, he just sort of had this kind of crazy life, you know, going all over the place doing cool adventures, and in the winter for at least a few years anyway, then he was our ski coach. Wow. Um, but he was okay. just an incredible figure, you know, just super fun, super charismatic, and, you know, really inspiring for all of us. So, and you, you said he was part of the inspiration, you know, for you coming to coaching, but let's kind of chart your career after graduation as an undergrad and how uh, going all the way to mm-hmm. when you ended back up as the coach in 2007. Talk about your stops along right. the way as an assistant coach, a head coach, and kind of even what you were thinking as you're getting your master's, like your motivation, ultimately I want to be a coach, right, maybe right. I want to go do research, you know, what, what were you thinking along those stops? What did you learn? Oh man, there were there were a lot of stops. Um, I, I must have taken the most winding and least efficient path possible to uh, <laughs> to become a college ski coach. Um, but yeah, so first off, I mean, you know, get out of college, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but know desperately that I wanted to ski, stay involved in skiing and and get into coaching if I could, but not really knowing how to do it. So um, so the first thing I did was I worked for two winters at the Sunday River Inn um, in Western Maine. And then taught ski lessons there and, you know, worked on skis and did all the stuff you do. Um, and then learned a lot just about sort of like how to teach people how to ski, um, that just sort of at the very beginner level. Um, right. And after a couple of years of that, then, um, you know, Bill stepped down as the ski coach and they hired Marty as his replacement. But, um, you know, I was able to, to take on the job as the assistant coach for him. And that was sort of my, my gateway in was coming right back to Bowdoin being the assistant coach. Um, for a year and you know learned a ton from marty obviously he's you know a guy who's had a ton of experience at the international level and just was a wealth of information and 
so forth. So he, he um, helped me get started as, um, as an actual coach. Um, from there, then um, spent a year at Colby working as an assistant to Tracy Cody, and she's, she's still running the program there. And she was also fantastic, you know, just as sort of a mentor and a friend to, uh, to help me get my feet under me. And, um, and at that point, you know, a couple of years bouncing around as the Eastern College assistant, then I had the opportunity to take on a head coaching role, not at the college level, but with a small junior program in Idaho, um, the Pocatello Cross Country Ski Foundation. Um, and that was really fun to just sort of be in charge for the first time and to sort of spread my wings a bit. Um, and this was just sort of a very low-key junior program, a lot of students, you know, just sort of getting into the sport for the first time and, you know, not a, not a place that had, you know, like a really hardcore competitive background where kids were going to JNs every year and stuff, but just a group of kids who were having fun and learning the sport. And, um, and I had an absolutely great time with them and, you know, really <clears throat> enjoyed that experience. Um, and at the time I was also, um, you know, I was sort of dabbling, taking a couple of classes here and there at Idaho State University and uh, got really excited about, about going on and, and doing an actual master's degree. So, uh, so after a couple of years in Pocatello, went up to Bozeman and, spent the next two and a half years there uh, working on my master's degree at Montana State, and I was also fortunate to have the uh, assistant coaching position there while I was uh, going through grad school. So everything sort of fell into place really nicely to get that ex-phys background established and learn so much more about the theoretical, you know, underpinnings of training while also continuing to coach professionally. Um, So, yeah, after a couple years at Montana State, then it was off to Whitman College, and got my first opportunity to be a head coach at the collegiate level. And, um, and I was really like, that was, that was probably like the most, the biggest jump, even though I had been doing it for years at that point. And theoretically, like I should have known everything I needed to know. Then I was just, it was such a different game from like a low key junior program, being the head coach or from being an assistant at the collegiate level, but to be a college head coach and to be in charge for the first time, even though I'd been doing it for, at that point, it was like six years of coaching under my belt, I think. And I still was just like blown away by how much different it felt to be the head coach at a collegiate level. Um, so it was, it was all quite a, quite a winding pathway, but that, um, you know, taught me a lot along the way. And then after two years at Whitman, of just sort of learning the program and figuring out how to be a college head coach. Then, you know, Marty resigned and, you know, he went into retirement and I was fortunate to get hired for that job and come back to Bowdoin in 07. So, Quite a, quite a long and winding road, but very fun and educational. Yeah, I mean, each of those stops was so important too to a, probably a different aspect of your development. You know, from starting to right. learning how to teach <laughs> beginners is impo- is important information to know. Learning how to how to teach Absolutely. high school people is important, and then yeah, following being an assistant. This, but I mean, I'm jealous. I, I wish I would have had that opportunity to be an assistant to someone who really knew everything so I could, right, right. you know, learn different things from it. But uh, actually, I was kind of curious as you went off to Idaho, you know, after having been an assistant at Colby and at Bowdoin, were you at that point kind of like, mm-hmm. all right, the ultimate goal is to be a collegiate ski coach? Or were you still kind of open to, hey, if, I, if I'm if i like, you know, kind of just teach, teaching high school kids and then, you know, doing something else on the side, mm-hmm. that'd be fine? Or, or was it always kind of to come back and, and to come back to Maine? Yeah, yeah. Um, not necessarily specifically college, not necessarily specifically in Maine or the East, but just the goal was to be a ski coach, to be a professional ski coach, to do that as my living and not as, you know, like, oh, I'll do this for a few months in the winter and then I'll, 
you know, go off and work in a bakery all summer or something like that, which is what I did when I was at Montana, you know. So yeah. the goal was, yes, I want to make a career, I want to make a living out of ski coaching, whether that happens in the East or the West or the Midwest or wherever, whether it's the collegiate level or the junior level, um, you know, there are pluses and minuses to all those things. But more than anything, I just wanted to be able to do this for a living because I just loved it so much and I wanted to be able to make that my, my full-time year-round job. So that, mm-hmm. that was always the goal right from, you know, a year or two out of college. So then, uh, you don't you don't have to answer this question with names specifically. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about is being that you had such awesome mentors, kind of at every stop. Did you, when you arrived at a different place or at Montana State, uh, did a coach ever kind of say one thing that you were like, "Man, the you know Marty didn't say that," or we always used this, or we always right, did it this right. way? Everything from okay, this is kind of my example. When I went to on our trip to Norway, and I'm like watching these guys scrape skis, oh. and they were doing all these things that like in all the videos, it's like never do this to a ski, and and I was like, wait a minute, and they're just like, no, no, here's the only rule you need to know about about ski ski waxing and scraping. It's all voodoo, you know. And I was like, okay, th- thank you. But I was kind of, you know, were you ever confused or here? How, how did you sort of like, yeah, handle information coming from all the different coaches you had? Oh man, <clears throat> you know, it's it's tough to say. I couldn't. Like, gosh, it's been, it's been a long time, you know. Um, I, it's really hard to, to point to, like, a thing, like a discrete piece of information that I picked up from right. this coach or that mentor or whomever. Um, it, it's instead, it's been more just like sort of like this this rain, you know, like a little drop here and there. It just sort of accumulates over time and, you know, just sort of like washes into into your being, you know, like yep. little things I picked up, you know, the way that people do things. And, it, and it's... Um, it's really hard to put my finger on it. Um, well, and I, I mean, part, like, to your, your, when, you, when you're learning the exercise science part two and you start to gain more broad yeah, knowledge, yeah. right? Like even on training physiology, you're right. You're kind of, you're always accumulating uh, <laughs> kind of a, a larger right. scope. So yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of a hard question to go back and think because you're probably one of those people who's just, I'm a, I'm a constant learner, right? So um now, right, right, now right. that I know, now that I know more about the science, then, then like what maybe a coach said five years ago, I can put it into its proper place and proper perspective based on this. Or sure. And so you mentioned in at Montana State, you did your your thesis work there, and specifically you did your study on on upper body power and double pull technique. And uh, before we kind of deep dive into right. that, what inspired you to pursue that specific thesis question? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, so there's just, um, there, I mean, you know, Nordic skiing, fortunately, there's been a decent amount of research out there, nothing compared to what you see from, like, running or cycling. But, right. you know, I think between Norway, Sweden, Finland, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there who have kind of like that scientific aptitude and that mindset and the resources to go out and investigate the sport. So, so we are lucky to have, like, a decent body of knowledge. But, um, you know, in the early 2000s when I was looking at this then, you know, there had just been some interesting studies that had come out. Um, it was still fairly new about, like, you know, strength training and upper body power in general and how we do that, How what's the best way we can do that for skiing. And there was just starting to be these little, you know, things that were starting to accumulate over the, the years that, you know, were telling us, you know, something that we already kind of knew in our heads with the importance of upper body power. But just with every passing study, it just became more and more clear how much more significant it was than we perhaps even realized. Um, and so, you know, I mean... In my case, I initially wanted to do a training study. Um, I was really eager to find out if, you know, something a little more ski-specific um, training-wise was going to be more effective than, 
you know, a lot of like a lot of heavyweights were kind of the thing back then. There was a lot of talk about like getting into the weight room and lifting heavy. Yeah. Um, there had been some good studies that had come out about max strength training and so forth. Um, although the max strength studies that you know that were really influential to people were actually not done with weights. They were done with they were done with sort of like a pulling machine and stuff to, to simulate double pulling as opposed to free weights, barbells, things like that. Um, so I was just really eager to know, like, well, in the U.S., we were training with a lot of weights and lifting heavy with, you know, barbells and dumbbells and weighted pull-ups and all those other things. And would a, would a free weight program like that, based off of a max strength training, be more effective or less effective than something that was a little more of a ski-specific mode, whether, and I never got that far, but, like, whether it was going to be rollerboarding or, you know, some kind of wind trainer or type thing or uh, roller um you know, double pulling on roller skis, something like that. So, um, anyway, I was interested in some kind of a training study, specificity versus general strength, heavy weights, things like that. Um, and just that seemed a little bit daunting, um, because, you know, just, you got to be able to attract a body of people and, you know, get them to like actually follow through with your training and do that at the same time you're trying to, to be a student and also an assistant ski coach. And it just seemed like, okay, this may not be in the cards. This may be a little bit over your head right now. Um, so instead, just figuring like, okay, well, another way we can investigate the question is just to sort of do a more observational study to, you know, measure a bunch of people, try to get a bunch of data from them, and try to, you know, see how that correlates to some race results and so forth. Um, and the more the more I kind of learned, you know, I was fairly new to reading scientific papers and things like that, the more I recognized that, you know, you don't have to set up an experiment you know, like an experimental design and do an actual training study to learn a lot about what influences ski racing and what's valuable and what's not, you know, you can instead keep it a little bit more simple, do what many of the other studies that have come out in recent years have done and try to like, you know, just pull in a bunch of data and, and, you know, try to find some correlations there and try to establish some relationships. So, you know, that, that was kind of what I ended up with. Um, But just, yeah, it came from just this sense that like, you know, ski training and particularly the strength training, upper body training was kind of, you know, had just started to be investigated, but was still a little bit under, you know, you know, under, under informed at that point. I think one of the discouraging things for me reading all the literature that has been done on skiing is that the nature of the sport, just because of its advancements by way of technology which then has influenced innovation Uh by the athletes which has then influenced innovation Uh by coaches who are training them has kind of made a lot of past studies in my head like as a skier going you know that information they found Uh back in 1992 probably isn't even relevant now but like it but then in the in the world of writing your paper where you have professors who don't know the sport and they're just looking for citations and things it's like well i guess i got i'll throw that in there and and you know talk about this discussion and things but but yeah the reality is it's just so different and and so i think it's interesting how you talk about yeah yeah, back then you know it was very clear to us that look at this the role the upper body (laughs) <laughs> right yeah in in all these different techniques let's look at it and other studies uh-huh. are being done and now almost in 2020 we might look at a study from 2005 and go yeah but now this you know <laughs> like and yeah. And, yeah. and it's just kind of crazy you know but well so yours looked at mm-hmm. um upper body 
it was the first to correlate upper body power to performance in a single classical race. And, and so, you know, you avoided the challenges of running everyone through a training simulation, but you also, you know, are doing right. on snow and a race. So what were some of the challenges organizing that? Um, you know, like how, how did you even do, how did you equalize skis and things like that? Or try to, I so guess. That's, I mean, honestly, that's one of the that's one of the big limitations of, of our study, you know, which is that we just didn't. We just said, okay, we're going to a race, and we have yep. a whole bunch of people whom we've tested, and they're all going to race, and they're going to put on whatever they put on, you know. So, so that whole um, you know that whole variable was was not controlled. You know, the skiers selected their own wax and so forth. Um, you know, and some some went with faster skis so they could double pull more, and then others went a little kickier, and their skis were a little slower so they could right. stride some of the hills and so forth. You know, so um, so that was just sort of like a <laughs> wide open piece, and and that's the kind of thing when I look back on my own study, I'm like, okay, that was an amazing learning experience for me. Um, you know, in, in terms of its contribution to the body of knowledge around skiing, it was sort of like, yeah, maybe reinforced a lot of the other stuff that was you know prior to that and came after it but you know i definitely don't see this as like this is not a super professionally designed right. like well-controlled right. study it was just sort of like okay let's get a bunch of people out there and see you know and see yeah. what sticks and that's kind of one of the challenges of of researching ski racing is that there are so many uncontrolled variables even if you are designing it yeah. in a professional way right um you know between the weather and the course conditions i mean you you know a track is a track a pool is a pool um you know cycling you can measure quite a bit with power meters and things like that and you know, ski racing you get out on the snow and you can control it as best you want whether it's on snow or even getting on pavement with matched roller skis and it's just not no yeah. it's just i think it's almost impossible to control some of those variables so um so yeah that was one of those things that made me think like okay well geez i mean you know this person could have blown the wax this person could have crushed it and you know that can really affect sort of our results especially in a small study um so yeah i've always felt sort of like okay this this was much more about me learning than about me making a, oh, a yeah. contribution to the ski literature out there yeah is it the i mean the whole idea of the thesis almost is like you're learning how to do research so it is kind of you know to sit and nitpick <laughs> any results and things it's kind of but 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 what you talked about with hey in norway and sweden and those places there's there's lots of research and resources being thrown into it and quite frankly in america <clears throat> that's that's just not the case so i I think one of the allure allures uh, for me anyway too is like I want to be you know one of those American students who's going to do a ski ski study but it is kind of right, like right. We, you start reading what they have access to and so like the things they can measure right. and you know 40 athletes and it's access to the national teams and it is kind of like the more I kind of oh dove into God, that yeah. world it's just like man maybe we're sort of doing it wrong here too where it's like we need to open up you know have our best athletes be interested in doing it because that's what they're doing over there or you know somewhere and right, and right. Uh, but but Montana State specifically, you know, is one of the one of the labs now where they've kind of, you know, set things up to conduct legitimate mm-hmm. ski re- mm-hmm. ski research. And now, you know, you guys, you had the modified ski erg to run your tests. And when I, you know, you page through your thesis, you can see the picture of that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that pretty much looks like the modern day thorax yeah, yeah. trainer. Like, were you someone who was like, let's right, build right. this and you kind of worked with them? Or was a lot of that stuff already there? Or were you one of the students that kind of pushed that lab even to kind of like becoming what it could be now? Or, or yeah, like talk about what it looked like when you got there and, that, and you know, what it is is now <laughs> yeah for sure um so yeah i was incredibly lucky um to have the opportunity you know to to study at montana state um and coach at the same time and have a professor who was 
already like passionate about skiing. And, you know, Dr. Heil, I mean, he had all kinds of research interests, but he was a competitive skier himself, you know, as a, <clears throat> at the master's level. Um, so it was so great to have a person who actually understood the sport and was passionate about it like I was and had already done some research in that direction. He had done right. a year or two prior to when I came, he had done a study about pole grips and, you know, yep. how they influenced, um, how they influenced power output. On, yeah, I came across so, that one too. <laughs> um, so anyway, he, he had already built sort of like a double pole machine that helped him measure that. And I, that was actually sort of broken when I got there. And that was just sort of not, um, that was not something that was available, um, for, for research at this point. But he instead, when he, you know, when I came in as a grad student and I started talking to her about my research, <clears throat> then, you know, again, he'd already sort of gone a decent way down that pathway and and i don't know if he already sort of had the blueprints in his head or if he sort of started um you know started to get interested about it you know uh, um as sort of a way of helping my research along but basically at that point he was like you know we can do something better than that previous machine that i had yeah and instead he chose to to convert this uh this concept to erg and make something a little more along the lines of like that the thorax trainer or something like that so um so yeah i mean you know, he, he was the man, like he fortunately had a lot of the technical skills and the vision to figure out how to make it all work. Um, and so, yeah, he, he just, you know, made some modifications in his garage. And next thing I knew, you know, I was just going through some of the early stages of the grad program, hadn't started the, the actual research project yet, but, uh, then I come into the lab and he's created this amazing machine that, uh, ended up being kind of like the, the cornerstone of my research. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm extremely lucky that Dr. Howell was sort of there as a, you know, as a, as a guide for me, um, because yeah, he really had, you know, he just really already had a passion for it and had the know-how to put something together that was actually going to be a legit way to measure power output on skis. I, I saw some of Dr. Heil's work when, um, so, so actually I'll, I'll, I'll give you some backstory into it. Um, so your research looking at kind of more so focused on short-term upper body power versus long-term upper body power and how they correlate. So you chose mm-hmm. a 10 mm-hmm. second test, a 60 second test, time trial to exhaustion. Um, right. and, but then also the, the measurements that, that were interesting to me were your relative upper body power. And so you had power relative to right. body mass and, um, actually quick question on that. You you measured yeah. in using underwater weighing. You did you used bot. You measured body fat, but then you never like included that. Did you did you have some data that was also like upper body power relative to bot to body fat percentage that you just didn't include in your discussion? Or what was like? Why did you why didn't you just have people step on a scale and measure their their weight? Yeah, honestly, well, that's uh, honestly that was uh, Doctor Hiles' suggestion and. He basically was like, okay, look, you know, you want to do research on people. You want to do, you know, you want to have as much information as you can about this population that you're working with, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe it's not going to be part of your stats, you know, maybe you're right. not going to try to draw correlations between power output and body fat, but it's just good to have as a descriptive measure, just so people understand what kind of group you're working with, you know? Sure, so sure. it was more about like the educational side of it is like, Hey, student, like this is a good way for you to conduct research. This is something to consider. For sure. And so it was, it was again more of a learning opportunity. But you know, he's just the kind of guy who likes to you know dot the i's and cross the t's. Sure. And one of the things that he thought is relevant to an audience reading your research is, you know, not just their height and weight, but you know, body fat percentage and so forth. So uh, and that does give, um, I suppose, clues yeah, to their fitness. The yeah, the the clues to, to the fitness level of the athletes that you're dealing with. Um, 
as well. But okay, so then, yeah, the reason that was curious to me is um, what we're looking at is specifically double pull performance on the flat and the incline. And I wanted to look at um, upper body strength to body mass ratio and lower body strength to body mass ratio and sort of how that impacted <laughs> double pull performance on the inclines and the flats. And actually, one of the quotes you had said in your discussion was like, uh, you know, <laughs> the variance of train and how the differences in courses, it's so w- wide ranging, right? And that's what makes it difficult to do studies in skiing. Uh-huh. But but maybe we, you know, in a future study, just like look at one aspect, just the flats, just the incline. Um, and so then I kind of, you know, yeah. oh, perfect. Like, I'll just do this standard range show and and um dr sonbach over in norway he's like you need to you need to start looking at Ale- the research about alometric scaling and i i didn't like i didn't even know what that right. was you know and and so that's where i found dr heil's research because he had done a lot of that with cycling yeah. you know and so yeah, exactly. And so, exactly yeah and and then when i kind of came back to yours i was like huh i wonder if there was ever a discussion when you know, Nathan was looking at his results and looking at upper body relative mm-hmm. to body mass. If you were, if he was ever like, you know, we really should use an alometric ratio for this or, or did, you know, like, was that right. ever talked about? You know, it wasn't, um, he was like way into, to, you know, sort of like cycling and frontal area and like alometric scaling and things like that. When I was, um, you know, like when I was doing my research there. So, um, I wonder if when I actually published the study, it was like probably four years after I had actually completed, you know, my grad degree. Right. And I wonder if, um, you know, if, if I had been doing that research, um, you know, if I'd actually been doing that research in like, you know, 07, 08, 09, when I was like putting this study together for publication, um, mm-hmm. if he would have maybe had that idea once he was a little, you know, had published some papers of his own with, with, uh, scaling and so forth. But, um, but no, that wasn't part of our conversations. And again, I think, you know, mercifully for me, like, I think he sort of gets like, okay, this kid's in grad school and, <laughs> you know, let's, let's keep things, let's keep things on a level that he can handle, you know, cause I mean, I still, like, I've, I've read a lot of his elementary scaling work and it's hard to you know, understand. I have a basic understanding of it, but yeah. that's not, you know, that's not my area of expertise or anything like that. So I was lucky that he sort of like, let me keep it as simple as possible. And he's like, let's draw some correlations, see what we find out. Yeah. And, well, I, I mean, but that would have been a fun direction to go in. Well, and, and kind of now going back to your study as I've, as I've kind of re reread, you know, where I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do and kind of why my mentors are saying, no, no, you need to consider this is, well, your study was, was trying to correlate more specifically or look at, you know, short-term versus long-term upper body power and performance. Whereas I'm really specifically looking at now this ratio between, you know, a person's body mass and how that impacts their, uh, double pull performance and and, and related to the upper body and lower body strength. But, um, yeah, I've, 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 I've received some feedback, you know, from other skiers. Oh, that's, there's maybe maybe a good study, maybe not. But even a finding from yours too was like that relative was important for females, but not for males. And granted, yeah, small sample sizes and all that. But right. I think just looking yeah, at it, I'm right. I, I'm kind of thinking like I feel like you could just watch ski races or any sport and just kind of go. It's not just about absolute power, and it's not just about being. Mm-hmm. super light it's the athletes that are the most have the most bang for their buck 
are excelling at every sport. The right. Mo Farahs, the and I even look at skiing and it's like Tori Siohag, you know, and, and these yeah, are not uh, people that yeah. are, are super large, right? And they, they have a lot of power for what right. they have. So I guess that's kind of, I think, and I kind of hope too that that's where skiing gets headed just from a, like a health health metric too. I think it's kind of discouraging for athletes right, to go, okay, right. I either need to get huge or on the other side, you know, especially right. you look at eating disorders and things like, well, I guess I just have to be small. It's like, no, we need to as coaches present like a performance-based metric that they can be striving for, you know? And, and I think there's a, at least a yeah. little more health around that strength to weight ratio and things, but <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Right, right. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I asked you about the modified ski erg. That was something I definitely wanted to touch on because my brother and I, like, I sent him these pictures. Right, I'm right. like, do you think we could, like, make one of these, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. do you miss sports research at all? Or uh, do you think you, you could have enjoyed a career doing that sort of thing? Or did you always sort of view it as, like, this is really awesome and interesting and supplemental for coaching, but I don't really want to get in that right. world. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely more of the latter. Because um, for me, in the end, it was always going to be about coaching. It was always going to be about ski racing. Um, you know, because it's, it's working with the athletes that I love. It's like helping them make that progress, building those relationships, you know, race day. Um, those are the things that I love about this whole this whole gig. And so, um, so, yeah, research was always a means to an end to help supplement my coaching. But honestly, like, I mean, as just a dabbler, I really did enjoy sort of like, you know, dipping my toes in the water there. Um, and I often think about like, okay, well, if I were going to get back into doing this, um, you know, and try to like actually do some real ski research, then there's just a ton of different things that you could think of. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I think it is super fun to think about and I would love to, you know, someday be in a position to do, you know, some, some, uh, more ski research, but, uh, but always more of like a means to an end because it's always going to be about coaching and athletes and races for me. I think I'm the type of person too where it's like, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I'd love to kind of just do my own tests and not have to go through the rigmarole of doing it published things you know like hey hey guys let's let's test and see how this works right. and collect some data you know like yep. that, that's a little more exciting sometimes the world of research gets a little i don't know it's, it's kind of messy and then it makes people dogmatic and then it's like oh i wish it didn't even exist <laughs> but anyway let's go let's go to your, we'll go to your questions about uh coaching here too so i mean i think everyone could agree that bowden just kind of continues to improve year after year what do you feel like are the keys to that oh man i think uh I mean, a big part of it is just sort of like we keep hanging around. Um, you know, I am fortunate I've been there for, I guess this is the end of my 13th year there. Um, having consistency, you know, having one coach with one message, you know, recruiting-wise and training philosophy-wise and stuff like that, having that continuity really helps to sort of build the program. Yeah. And it's taken a really, really long time, but gradually we're starting to sort of like, you know, change the perception of Bowdoin skiing, put it on the map just a little bit. I mean and draw a little bit more interest from, you know, from recruits and so forth. And, you know, it's, um, it's just a lot easier to, you know, to build a competitive ski program when you can bring in, you know, a handful of, you know, of, um, you know, competitive recruits every year. So, um, you know, we're, we're just fortunate to be able to be attracting a little bit more attention from, from some strong junior skiers. And we're definitely not at the point where we're, you know, recruiting a handful of the top juniors every year, but we're recruiting athletes who have a solid background of training, who've been training with some good programs, who have been to junior nationals, um, not all of them, but many of them. 
And, um, you know, we're just sort of starting out at a slightly higher level, and it makes it that much easier over the course of the next four years to get them to a place where they can be really competitive in EISA skiing, um, right. given that, you know, they're not, they're not starting from that less experienced level. So, um, so, yeah, just having that consistency, changing perceptions of the program, bringing in stronger recruits and so forth, that's been a big part of it. Um, I, I would, you know, I would like to think that, Part of our success also has to do with um, just that we have what I consider to be a very positive and supportive team culture. Um, I think that that's the kind of thing where regardless of the talent level, the experience level that people were recruiting, then we're putting them in a situation where they have a bunch of really supportive teammates, where they have a coach who's flexible and supportive and cares about them as people and so forth. Um, and I just really think that we're creating an environment that hopefully makes this really fun for them, makes it a positive experience, makes them want to go out and train, makes them excited to ski fast for not just themselves but for the team. And, and I do feel like we're creating an environment that makes those things possible, and that helps them ski faster regardless of whether they came in with a strong JNs background or just a sort of a humble, you know, high school skier who had not had not gone to you know higher level races outside of the state or anything like that. So. I don't know, a lot of different factors contributing, but mostly we're just hanging around, chipping away, taking little baby steps every year, you know, gradually getting faster. I, I think that culture piece is huge, though, and and you're you're correct. You know, you you, you can be you're humble about it, but I remember even um, <clears throat> some of the time I, I when I wandered through the wax room at 4A, even on the training camp last year, and and I would see your skiers right. communicating with people from other teams and um, just the things they said and. Um, how they were, you could tell that, yes, they were in a program where they knew their coach cared and uh, cared about them as a person. And, and I think that is a difference when it's like, no matter what your ability level is, if you are, if you're a good person, you'd fit in at a Bowdoin. And it's like, and then, and then because of that, you'll kind of go, you will go, go, I mean, and I don't say that as like, well, you can be, you can be terrible at skiing, but, but the people there care and they improve. Right. So, I mean, gradually that builds your base and then you are getting some blue chippers and things along the way. But I think the culture piece of everyone's Mm -hmm. welcome here. And then, you know, but you, you, you do have to care about about skiing and kind of doesn't do it i mean i don't know I, I no i think that is definitely huge i mean maybe my perspective is wrong but that's kind of how i how i i saw you guys this program is like you know you can get a really good well-rounded education but also be pushed and welcome and th- there's a difference not all right, schools right. are gonna be like that in the eisa where where you're gonna have that but anyway um so what were what were some of your guys's goals going into this season how do you feel you you did right right no i mean um this has been, you know, by just about any competitive measure you can imagine, this has been our best season ever. And so we, we feel extremely happy with it. It was just fantastic. And um, goal-wise, you know, we actually, the team, you know, I had sort of, I always have my own goals and hopes and stuff like that, but I generally try to keep that between me and my assistant coach um, and let the athletes decide what kind of team goals they have um, rather than me putting my own expectations on them. And so, the team really takes shape for us in October because we're allowed to start training with the team the first Monday in October, and, and we do a short tryout period before we make our team official. So it was it was only Columbus Day weekend when we have our fall break and our training camp that we really sort of come together as a team for real, even though we've kind of been, you know, kind of been a <clears throat> forming for, for the last several months prior to that. So 
Um, so at that point, we go to fall camp, and it's real, and the team sits down, and they make their goals for the season. And this year, the team had um, some pretty ambitious goals. Um, you know, they, they wanted to... They wanted to finish top three in a carnival um, for the Nordic scoring. We don't have an Alpine team, so it's only about the Nordic scoring for us. So they wanted to be a top three Nordic scoring team, you know, skate classic, men, women, all combined. Um, They wanted to win the Chummy Cup again, which we had done for the first time ever the previous year. Um, You know, they had a goal of uh, sending a full six people to NCAAs, which was just a ridiculously audacious goal because we had never sent more than three. Um, and we're generally, most years we're happy to send one or two. Well, not happy, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a successful season for us. You know, we're getting a couple people to NCAAs. Um, but the notion that we were going to somehow send six people to NCAAs was just absurd. And yeah. I loved that they put that down as a goal um, because it was so ambitious and nobody from outside of our program would have thought that they had any chance of doing that. Um and, and I just love that they were willing to just put that out there and put that on paper and commit to it as a group. Um, so, yeah, we, we set some pretty big goals, and, um, you know, we, we hit most of them. We, we were top three several times as a, as a um, program in the overall carnival scoring um, for Nordic. Um, I think four out of the six carnivals then we were we were in the top three, and that was, that was pretty amazing. That was far beyond anything we'd ever done before. Um, we did defend the Chummy successfully, um, and we qualified five for NCAAs instead of six. So, wow. um, you know, that was that was a miss, but it was a much nearer miss than anybody might have predicted going into the season. So, um, so it was it was pretty uh, pretty sweet. And then there were so many individual successes um, along the way with personal bests and so forth that it was just really a fantastic season. And best of all, it's you know, like we said earlier, then the team culture piece was very solid. All the feedback I've gotten from the athletes in our postseason conversations, is, you know, and what I was seeing out there during the season was they were having a great time together. They just, they loved being together and, you know, they supported each other and they had so much fun and they just, their, their energy was great. And, you know, and there were bumps in the road like there always are with a group of people, but it was all just really, really nice. And, so we just feel fantastic about the season. So as, as a coach, what do you see as the most common thing you are working to develop in your skiers? And is there anything that's kind of changed over your 13 years where there's new things that you mm-hmm. feel like you have to address, whether it's physical or mental? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, so it has changed tremendously for me as a coach um, in terms of my priorities and the things that I'm working with them on. Um, so obviously when I got here, you know, as a relatively new, you know, fairly recent graduate student, um, I had very much like an ex-phys model in my head when I'm designing the training and when I'm thinking about how to help my athletes get faster. And it was so much about, you know, like, okay, well, you know, classic ex-phys model says, you know, like, well, VO2 max, lactate threshold, um, you know, economy, you know, these big factors are going to determine how fast you can ski. So I need to set up a training plan that's going to maximize those three variables and, that's how we're going to ski fast. And, uh, you know, it's funny how, like, having that level of knowledge, like a little bit of knowledge is dangerous because all of a sudden you focus on, you know, hitting certain variables instead of, like, well, what is actually happening here? What's actually getting, you know, what's actually making the skiers go faster? It's not necessarily, like, increasing their VO2 max or raising their lactate threshold. It's, you know, like, it's so much more complex than that. So, um, 
so getting gradually learning to sort of pull away from the idea that we're just going to manipulate a small number of variables to get the fastest outcomes and to recognize, you know, how much more nuanced it is. Um, and so, you know, moving away from that to sort of like mechanistic, like ex-fizz model, um, and, and instead recognizing that so much of what makes an athlete fast are the pieces that I have very limited control over. Um, things like, you know, their recovery practices outside of the workouts, you know, and how they, how they spend their time, you know, like how good are they at managing their time and getting to bed on time and, you know, minimizing the amount of like, you know, excessive socializing, drinking, things like that that are happening. Um, you know, are they good at like getting their schoolwork done so that they can come to practice without being super stressed, you know, um, so many of those different things. And so now it's so much more about coaching the whole person instead of like, you know, trying to, you know, trying to hit these lab rats with your different interventions. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I consider this, um, I consider the mental game and the, um, you know, sort of building the confidence and, you know, the resilience and things like that to be honestly so much more important than any of the, training and physiologically based things that, that I used to value so highly. Um, it's so much more now about bringing athletes to the line who are rested and happy and healthy and low stress and confident and things like that. You know, I am coaching. I'm, I'm way more of a counselor than I ever realized I was going to be when I started my coaching career, but I'm recognizing that that's now, you know, that's so much more valuable than any of the other stuff that used to be so important to me. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk about the different variables that really go into impacting performance. And it, it, I mean, the physiological uh-huh. aspect is such a tiny grain in reality. And, send, and that's one of the grains that we know the least about. Like it's the most variable dependent right. on, on individuals. Yeah, I, I should say, yeah, it's, it, 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 it could be so different for every single person. So it is kind of funny that some coaches do right. tend to be dogmatic about an approach or just to be obsessive about it. Like that's the only thing they're thinking of. And, and yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. you learn over right. the course of time of coaching that, man, I, I'm actually, I'm going to get a lot more bang for my buck if I'm focusing on all these different variables that impact performance, like balance with school, um, where they're at mentally, you know, and confidence and happiness. Uh Um, I think one thing that is interesting and and maybe what you know maybe we'll have this discussion 20 years from now again is <laughs> revisiting it because the 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 like our generations have changed so what what one coach in the 80s right. might have even if they had your same perspective like i need to how do i get my kids happy mm-hmm. you know the pressures upon today's generation or the way today's generation deals with things whether it's they have shorter attention spans or social media has impacted them i just think that's so incredibly influential and different than it was even 10 years Mm -hmm. ago Mm -hmm. much as back in the 70s and 80s right Right. i think if you took athletes from from my parents generation the 80s they go well yeah we we struggled Mm -hmm. with this but never with that you know like we were always really good about doing our school and such and and now i think yeah you look at today's Mm -hmm. athlete Mm -hmm. and it's like and is that, is that ever hard where you kind of go, man, I can't believe I'm having to kind of like get kids through this. I can't believe this is what they're struggling with, you know, or do you just kind of go, not at this point, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 I, I hear, I hear that sort of generational, you know, change and divide and so forth from, you know, a lot of coach conversations, uh, whether it's key coaches or just other coaches around the department. And, and I know that that is, um, I know that that's a very real factor. Um, for whatever reason, it's not been something I haven't noticed it as much, um, you know, just because in the end, I think like as much as, you know, society changes and the students themselves change, um, 
then, you know, people are still people, and I think they still have the same basic needs. And, um, and I, I don't know, and I guess, like, yeah, there's all these challenges with social media and smartphones and attention spans and things like that. But, like, I, I guess a big part of it is just that I really like these students, you know, and I, um, I just think that I just really enjoy spending time with them and working with them. I think they're just such great people. And, and honestly, like I compare these people to myself and I'm like, okay, well, I don't see the problem here. I think these kids are just so much smarter and more engaged and, and more aware and open-minded and compassionate and so forth than, than I, the coolest kid in the nineties was. Um, so, so I don't know. I don't doubt that there are all these real generational shifts that are happening, but I just enjoy working with the students so much. I just appreciate them so much as people that I, um, I, I'm not like, I don't find myself super bothered or challenged by, right. by that. I feel like they just have the same human challenges that people have always had. And, um, yeah, and I mean, we, and we just have to work around some of those factors. So even though sort of like some of the trappings, you know, have changed, then I don't think the basic challenges have changed. At least that's my perception. Um, maybe it's just that I've only recently become aware of the things that really matter. Um, and, and that's why I, I don't have that same long perspective because I perhaps wasn't valuing those things enough when I started my career 20 years ago. So who knows? Well, so what do you feel like is your biggest strength as a coach and your your kind of maybe admittedly weakness? And what do you do each year to try and improve, you know, in just your profession? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. My, my, um, I would like to think that my biggest strength now, um, it was not true, you know, even seven or eight years ago, but I would like to think my biggest strength now as a coach is – in the um, is, is listening, um, you know, building the relationships with the athletes, you know, really listening and trying not to, you know, talk less, listen more. That's that was sort of like a big self improvement point that I had several years ago that I have hopefully made some progress in. Um, but just sort of treating them as individuals, recognizing that I don't necessarily have the answer. I don't ever necessarily need to have the answer. I just need to be ready to listen to them and help them work through it. And we try to solve things together. Um, and, you know, just being ready to, to just sort of hear that there are so many different needs and so forth out there, um, that, you know, it's much more important to sort of give the athlete an outlet to let them be heard and to help them work through the problem with, with, you know, someone who's there to support them as opposed to support, you know, to solve the problem for them always. Um, so I'd like to think that that's kind of my one of my biggest strengths. It's certainly something that I care the most about that I'm working the most on, whether or not it's, you know, it's truly my best strength as a coach. But, um, but yeah, uh, weaknesses, I mean, I could give you a long list of those. But, <laughs> um, I don't know. In some ways it goes hand in hand with the strength piece because um, I think as much as I'm trying to, like, you know, make this a positive experience for everyone and listen to them and treat them with respect as individuals, um, I do also think that I'm a little bit soft on the athletes, or some of my athletes might tell you I'm quite a bit soft. You know, I am a bit of a pushover as a coach. I'm generally the answer is almost always going to be yes. You know, when they say like, "Oh, can I, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I, you know, can I go surfing instead of you know train this weekend?" <laughs> that it's like yeah. I don't think there are a lot of coaches who would really believe that, and they would consider that like just completely unacceptably soft. You know, yeah. um, but I think part of my model and my philosophy has always been that you know, we need to make sure that the skiers are having a good experience and they're taking care of themselves. And if that kid needs to go, go mountain biking this weekend, instead of going on the roller ski with us, you know, if that's what they need for, you know, just sort of their physical, emotional, mental well-being, then, you know, 
I'm, I'm going to let them do that. Um, and I do think that sometimes you can go too far with that and you can just end up being a little bit soft and not holding them to the, to the standards that you perhaps should. Um, but that's sort of, that's something I've made my peace with. And I don't think I'm going to, you know, I'm just not the personality who's going to change and become like a super hard ass at some point. And so, you know, I accept the trade-offs for the sake of having athletes who feel, you know, who feel like they've been able to, to take care of their needs, to step back from the sport a little bit, to, um, you know, to do some of those other things that, you know, that, uh, might help them, you know, feel happy and feel, feel refreshed. Um, so yeah, definitely something where, you know, I do often get the feedback that, you know, pushing the team hard, holding them to higher standards is, is something that I need to do. And, and I think that's real and, you know, do my best there, but it's definitely still a work in progress. Um, so yeah, sure. <laughs> plenty of things to, uh, to keep improving. Do you feel, do you have like a, a mentor um, or a coach that you, or someone that you go back to kind of for advice that's a, that you consider above you or, or a role model to get feedback as well? No, oh, man. Um, there, there have been a number of those people over the years, and I, um, I wish I had kept better in touch with all the different people who have helped me along the way. Um, honestly, like my wife, Shannon, is a big source of, you know, help for me, even though she's not a ski coach herself, you know, she was a ski racer in college and she right. is just a pretty thoughtful person who knows me really well and just always has great advice and is not afraid to pull punches. Um, you know, when I'm talking to her about something that she thinks, you know, needs some constructive criticism. So, um, right. she, she's actually been an amazing, um, you know, resource and supporter. Um, I, um, you know, obviously talked to my assistant coach, Leslie Critchko. I'm very lucky to have her. She's, uh, been with us for two years you know she's a former olympian and right. so forth and um just has a wealth of experience not just as an athlete but you know just as a human being um you know has three adult kids at this point and she just is just has so much wisdom to to share that she she really helps sort of balance me and ground me a little bit um and you know just i, I really enjoy talking to other coaches um around the league and elsewhere you know just little bits and pieces you can pick up i can always learn something from from talking to other coaches, um, you know, Tracy Cody up at Colby in particular, like I said, she was, she was really a great help for me to, uh, when I was starting my career and she's still someone who I talk to frequently. I just really value her opinion because she's, you know, been through this as well at a very similar school and just has a lot of, a lot of good insight. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people I talk to on a regular basis and I feel like I can learn a little bit from, from everybody. I'm very lucky to have, you know, sort of a, quite a good network of people that I can, that I can draw from. Um, and before we kind of end some of these coaching questions, uh, the, the all encompassing Uh important one, how would you finish this sentence? The reason I coach is. (laughs) Oh boy, boy. Um, hard to make it pithy, you know, and, and come up with just one little thing to put at the end of that sentence. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, geez. I think if I were going to just pick one thing, the reason I coach is because I love working with the athletes. Um, you know, I just, I love the energy that they bring and they, they, you know, that they help, that they give to me. Um, you know, I love seeing them improve. Um, you know, I just love getting to know them and just sort of, you know, building those relationships. And I mean, you know, I just, I genuinely enjoy spending time with my athletes. You know, they're just such nice, you know, smart, fun, you know, kind people that like, it's genuinely nice to go to a camp with them and right. to ride in a van with them. And, you know, so yeah, I guess the reason I coach is because I love working with athletes. Um, you know, 
sometimes over the course of a season they drive me absolutely crazy but uh, but you know it's just really special to be you know to be able to influence someone's life hopefully in a positive direction and so I I enjoy that and I appreciate it so much um, that that's you know that's ultimately the single biggest reason why I do this and and that may, that's what makes you an effective coach, you know, no doubt. I, I guess a follow-up question to that is is probably what's your mission for them? You know, you talk about you care about them so much, you enjoy being with them. What do you want them to right. live with? Oh, I mean, I guess, honestly, I think that's really more up to them, you know. Um, like, what do you want to leave this program with, you know? And so, yeah, if I were to sort of like – see from my perspective then you know i assume that every kid comes in here because they want to ski fast but more than that they just want to they just want to have a really fulfilling rich experience you know and and that is defined differently for every person you know for some people it's very much rooted in the competitive side of things and for others it's much more going to be about you know the experiences they have the relationships they build the confidence that they gain things like that you know so so yeah i don't know i don't know exactly how to answer it succinctly but um I, I don't know, more than anything, I think what I hope for is there's some kind of personal growth that happens. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that when they walk out the door, I've helped them become a better person in some fashion, you know. Um, and that I think that there's so much room for personal growth that happens just through pursuing a sport at a high level. Um, but I also, I try to be intentional about making sure that our program's a place where you also, you know, just learn other values that may have nothing to do with competition, you know, just in terms of being a good teammate, being a good person, you know, being someone who contributes to, um, you know, to society in a positive way. So, so yeah, I'm just hoping for some kind of personal growth and hoping for them to walk out of here being, you know, just a little bit more thoughtful, a little kinder, more compassionate and so forth. Um, whatever they go on to, to do in the world. So I think that what you said about, um, you, they, they, they want a fulfill, fulfilling experience, and for some, that's def, it's obviously defined differently. And um, this, I think, is the struggle right. for coaches at, at private mm-hmm. Division three schools specifically because mm-hmm. you end up with, <clears throat> obviously, not all people on full rides. No one's on a full ride. And how, the question right. of how does a coach build a culture where the kid who wants to be national champ feels edified and the person who's just out there just to be there also feels edified and has that been kind of a journey a roller coaster to navigate that as you you know have teammates that are supporting each other in their separate kind of goals you know have have you have you experienced that and what what can you say about that well so it's an interesting question um because we sort of have gone through an evolution within our program about sort of those different different levels um and so like for for all of my you know valuing of the student experience the relationships etc um you know i need to be clear i'm i'm not um i'm not just sort of creating a program where people are sort of having a a more casual less competitively focused experience you know right um we made a choice at some point um 2013 maybe to, uh, we made a choice to really limit the ski team um, by having a tryout system and making cuts, you know, um, specifically because that was a tension that I was not successfully resolving on the team was sort of the challenges of having, like, very high-level athletes who wanted to compete at a high level and, and myself as a coach wanting to coach in that direction, but also having, 
you know, having, I think, a whole lot of different levels of skier interest levels on the team, you know, yeah. having a number of skiers who are just a little bit more casual about it. Like, yeah, everyone wants to go fast. Everyone wants to compete. But some people are just a lot less willing to pour themselves into it than others. Right, and, right. And that creates a real that creates a real challenge as a coach when you have, you know, a third of your team that is sort of like, you know, that likes doing this, but is not that invested in whether or not they're, you know, 40th place or 43rd, you know? Um, So, yeah, so we had to draw a line at some point to say like, okay, look, we want the positive student experience and we want it to happen grounded in the pursuit of skiing fast um, as opposed to saying like, well, we're just going to try to be all things to all people. Um, yeah. So th- that was probably the single most important decision I made at you know, any point in my career was to decide that was how I wanted to shape the culture of the team. And that doesn't, you know, like having that kid who wants to chase an Olympic goal or an NCAA All-American or whatever it is, that does not prevent you from having a program where you can still really, you know, respect and value everybody as an individual, where you can still, you know, create an, an experience that's fulfilling beyond the competitive side of things. I, I think that they go hand in hand. I think you're going to ski faster if you are supported as an individual, if you are sort of allowed to pursue right. other passions, and if you have an environment that's, that's um, you know, fun and, you know, <clears throat> exciting and challenging and so forth. So, um yeah, that was that was kind of that was my belief. Even as a as a coach, was trying to convince athletes that it's not mutually exclusive. You can some people are like, well, we just want to have fun, no. and those people just want to compete. It's like no, by by right. if, you, if your standard for um, uh, and and it kind of came down. Honestly, I I believe that philosophically, it's like we need to define what success is. You know, and and if we define success as right. becoming right. everything that you can possibly be. Um, you will find no greater enjoyment in doing that <laughs> like that. And, and all the fun, goofy memories will also come along with it. But like the pursuit of true excellence is, is mutual, is not mutually exclusive with, with just having a good time. They, they go hand in hand. And, but, but, but also then you get that pressure. I'm, I'm sure, uh, you're from the highest up in the college has to support that because they could also go, well, right. well, gee, Nathan, like Bowden, we've got like 75 people who want to come ski for them. You can't be making cuts. Like you got to just, because I mean, right. the sheer right. amount of financial impact that that could have. And so it's interesting that you were able to kind of go, no, this yeah. is what we're going to do, you know, um, making that decision. Yep. And I, I'm lucky with institutionally. I think I'm fortunate. I mean, I would obviously like, this is all driven by what Bowden wants from its athletic programs. And, you know, I'm in a position where, you know, my the, the the place that I ultimately came down in terms of how I want to shape my team aligns with what they want. You know, yeah. they definitely are prioritizing the student experience. They also, at the same time, recognize that you know, we as coaches and the athletes want to be competitive, and so you know, they're not saying like, yes, you have to have an open door policy. You got to give every kid a tryout. You got to give them a fair shake. You got to be respectful and sensitive in that whole process, of course. Um, you don't have to just sort of like throw the doors open wide and throw away any standards, you know. So, uh, so I think fortunately, their you know their vision for what an athletics program should be aligns very well with mine. Okay, and and you know, talking about collegiate skiing now, what are your uh, out here out west? I actually raced against a couple of. Uh, in races, we had some NCAA competition, but also USCSA competition. And kind of like, I always feel like the USCSA, it warms my heart because honestly, it's like, that was me as a runner, right? I wasn't D1 material necessarily. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I just wish, and I hope it continues to grow. Um, 
but I don't, I don't know if I was thinking about this on the on a run the other day, actually, I was like, you know, really at people in the NCAA ski system kind of look at USCSA skiers as being division two. And I would always go like, mm-hmm. well, if USCSA all of a sudden got bought by the NCAA some way and they all became division two, in some ways that would <laughs> that maybe be bad. Cause I mean, and this is kind of, you know, former NCAA athlete, I sort of, I don't know all the information, but you kind of just, sometimes I feel like the NCAA isn't always fair to its athletes and to each sport. And it seems to me right. like the USCSA is like, Hey, we're skiers. We get skiing. We'll create our own league that gets skiing and it's made for it. Um, with someone right. like you who has right. way more experience in the NCA system, do you kind of look at that and go, yeah, I kind of hope they just sort of stay, stay where they're at because if they, if, if the NCA wanted to create some other mega umbrella, it would just mess things up or, you know, or not, or mm-hmm. what are your thoughts generally on that league and its relationship to collegiate skiing, but also just the pipeline right. that we have in the U S Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, what I know of USCSA comes from the outside. I'm not, I'm not coached in a program that, that participates. Um, and so I don't have, like, great knowledge of, like, what kind of organization they are and how they function. Um, but from the outside, I think it's great. I absolutely love that USCSA is there because um, being an NCAA ski program just takes – to be an NCAA ski program that can compete at this level, um, of which there's only one, takes a lot of resources. You know, you've got to right. you've got to put a certain amount of resources into building a program that's going to be able to travel around and attract the recruits and give them the training opportunities they need. And you know, just in terms of staffing, you know, to have a couple of coaches to to run the program. I mean, you know, there's there's kind of a high threshold for being a competitive NCAA team. Right. And I, I think that it's great to have USCSA as sort of an alternate model for a school that says, yes, skiing is good and we want to have this on our campus, whether we call it a varsity team or a, or a club, but we're not willing or able to put in that kind of, you know, that kind of money and that kind of investment to, uh, to build a competitive NCAA program. So I just really love that there's this other model out there that, like you said, is, you know, created entirely by and for skiers. Um, that allows people to continue the ski race. And, you know, just I think it really helps the sport to have more kids go through collegiate skiing and hopefully go on after that and, you know, become master skiers or coaches or whomever, um, you know, just to contribute to keeping the U.S. ski community strong. I think that it's really nice to have a pathway. Um, and also the truth is, is that because there are so few NCAA programs because of, you know, there are just not that many right. schools willing to put in that investment to build those programs. Um, that means there's a relatively small number of high school skiers who get to go on and ski at the NCAA level. Exactly. And so exactly. having all these USCSA schools out there, well, that's an open door for the kid who, you know, is not necessarily at a level, whether it's of interest or talent or something like that, is not at a level where they can go and compete in an NCAA team. I really, really like the idea that there are a lot of good options out there for those kids um, because the sport needs everybody you know, regardless of what level they're at. And I think it's really good to have an alternate, um, you know, option for skiers who aren't necessarily, for whatever reason, going to be a good fit for an NCAA team. Well, and I think one thing I learned connected to this when I went out over recruiting in Norway, too, is their system is really beneficial for the skier ages 19 to 23, even though there's there's no, like, collegiate ski Mm -hmm. system, because it, it is... 
they they have their club that they grew up with, you know, from age five right. until they could ski until they're 40, 50, you know, in the same mm-hmm. club. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's there's always an avenue for an athlete kind of at any age to compete. And yeah, the sad reality in our right. infrastructure here is you're right. If they get the end of high school and they're not NCAA D1 material, what are they going to do? You know, yep. like and and I think right. the the, right. the sad thing that I pick up on from students because I I think you know you could argue like you said well it's good that it's there there's this alternative but the problem is is um our athletes don't really view that league I don't think as as being legitimate enough I think that's that's the thing that kind of breaks my heart Mm -hmm. in some ways it's like hey guys if you were an NCAA division three national champion soccer you would never as an NCAA division one athlete go well that that doesn't matter at all you know, and like essentially right. what you see with right. the USDSA, it's like these are athletes who would be D3 in their respective sports, but there isn't an NCAA sure. D3. And and I think something has to change there where like, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't have the answer to the solution, but I just think like, yeah, that somehow colleges have to recognize that as being more legitimate or I don't know. It, se- it seems to me like in, in the Midwest, they're they're starting to make more deal, a um, bigger deal of it. Maybe that's just because there's more private schools kind of yep. in there. And now the USCSA is, is coming into schools that aren't private and I don't know, but yeah, I, I hope right. it kind of keeps going because I think it is a really critical piece of the pipeline for like skiing in the whole country, even though it's not at the grassroots beginning, it's, it's very impactful. If as an athlete, you have nothing you're looking forward to. And yeah, gosh, if you look at other endurance sports, like running, especially, I mean, the D3 runners are the ones who who really honestly are running for the rest of their life. Like that's the population that comes out of running goes, I loved running. I loved my experience and I'm going to keep doing it. You look at D1, D2, and it's like they're burned out when they're 23, like unless they sign some contract with Nike, you know, like and it's kind of sad. And I'm not sure if that I, you know, I'm not around NCAA skiers enough to know if that's the case with skiing. I I don't think it totally is. But um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting that the piece that it plays. I don't think people talk about it maybe enough, but all right. Well, Nathan, I appreciate your time so yeah. much. This has been really, really fun. Um, I did have one more yeah, question, yeah. or a couple more, I guess, but uh, this one maybe is more directly tied to the EISA. You know, we've seen these bright young stars uh, in the U.S. on the world stage, and some of them are coming right from your conference. So if you were coaching an athlete, right. you might have an opportunity to go pro, skip the rest of college. Um, and in fact, we just I just interviewed Kendall Kramer uh, two days ago, and you know, she's oh, cool. someone who is like... No, no, I'm going to go to college. I want to get that experience. I'm going to do both sports. And but, but how would what would you right. how would you advise them in that situation? Uh, I mean, it's it's um, it's very individual. I mean, you see, you know, the current successful World Cup athletes. You know, the pathway can be pretty different. You know, you've got some who chose to you know skip college and go straight into skiing at an elite level and have had great success, and then you've had others who went through four years at a you know, really elite college and still managed to come out of that and achieve World Cup success themselves, you know. So I think it really depends on the individual athlete. Um, I definitely don't think that you need to, like, chase the skier away from college. We've clearly seen that you can have your cake and eat it too. Um, it's it's not easy to do, but it's still definitely very possible. Um, but for some athletes, you know, that's, you know, if their passion's not in, you know, balancing that academic side with the athletic side, then there's no need to like sort of like try to force every kid into that, into that model. Um, Mm. I I would say that I think it's probably, it takes a lot of pressure off the shoulders of an athlete to have gotten their college degree taken care of. 
um, you know, simply because, you know, you don't want to be retiring from elite skiing in your late 20s or your early 30s or what have you and not really have, you know, a clear yeah. idea of what you want to do. It it does put those skiers at a bigger disadvantage, and that's been, you know, I know that's been a challenge with U.S. skiing for years. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. If I were coaching an athlete at that level, I mean, I think you would just have to be a conversation to feel out, well, what do you really want? Where are your priorities? Right. How much are you willing to invest in this? Um and so forth. And if it's, you know, trying to balance it and do college, then let's try to find a program that's the best fit for you and that's going to allow you to do both those things well. Um, but, you know, more, more than anything, I mean, you know, these younger athletes having success, I mean, whether they go to college or not, you know, um, it's still going to be the same pathway, which is going to be just, you know, train a lot and, you know, find the fastest people you can to race against. And, you know, make sure that you're loving it the whole time, that you really love the process, because it's pretty clear from listening to, you know, any elite skier who's retired talk about it, that, you know, it can be pretty consuming and it can be pretty challenging to, to race in Europe and be on the road and, and sometimes take your lumps and not necessarily get the results you want. So right. if you're going to, if you're, if you're going to make that your goal, then you better love the journey. And hopefully that's where all these athletes are at. I, I'm really excited to see what this next generation can do. Yeah, and actually speaking to that, I was kind of wondering if you had an opinion on the group that we saw now the last two world juniors who have have gotten gold in the relay, specifically those those four mm-hmm. guys like um, what do they need to do right, to right. stay on top at the next level? And I guess when I asked that question, mm-hmm. yeah, obviously they're gonna train hard and they're gonna they're gonna receive those things. Yep. Part of me worries that the if there's is there a reality of like, well, they'll be the same athletes, right? Like going on the World Cup, but but at the World Cup, Norway's got ten trillion dollars they can pour into their wax truck, and all these athletes will have way more skis, and sure. so that's what it kind of comes down to. I mean, I I don't have enough experience in yeah. watching and observing competitive skiing to know like that's the reality. But if it's not, what do they have to do to just stay on top? It doesn't seem like it'd be as simple as just well, they just have to keep working hard, or you know, they have to learn how to take right, downhills right. better. You know, like what is it going to be? Yeah, um, I mean, and it's a good question. I've not, you know, I haven't mentored an athlete through that transition myself, you know, coaching at the collegiate level. Um, you know, the, the main thing I could say, though, is just that, um, you know, any athlete going to another, uh, to a higher level, any athlete who's looking to make a jump, um, it, again, it's going to be so much about the mental game, you know. So I think for as a coach, I would want to manage expectations. I would want to prepare that athlete for, what they're headed for, you know, to try to recognize, okay, well, let's define what success is. Let's make sure we've got some, some short-term goals. Let's make sure that we are very focused on process. Um, because when you're making a transition to a new level, you have no idea what the outcome is going to look like and you can't control what that's going to be. So, you know, you're focusing on process, you're focusing on doing things right. You're focusing on short-term goals and ways that you can measure success outside of just the results, because the results may not come immediately. And in fact, preparing them for that, managing the expectations to know that the results probably won't come immediately, you know? And these are the kind of things that, you know, I, I don't doubt that these, you know, young athletes having all this success are having those kind of conversations. And I think that just keeping yourself grounded and remembering, you know, remembering what got you to where you are and remembering that it's about taking these baby steps and making slow, gradual progress um, and focusing on process is probably going to give you the best chance of finding success um, when you get to the next level, you know, just, but yeah, managing expectations is huge um, for, 
you know, not to put too much of a burden on an athlete, not to create other unrealistic expectations and just to make sure that they, that they know what they're getting into and that they're just sort of ready to, to be patient and to just, you know, have a slow, steady grind. And, and again, hopefully take time to enjoy the process and, you know, can't control if you'll get there or not, but you, I think will maximize your chances if you go into it with that mindset. So I'm glad you gave that answer, I, and I'm glad I asked you that question. I wasn't sure if I was going to you know, leave that one out because I think that gives great insight to how you as a coach approach things, you know, the things you can control, focusing on process goals, all that right. stuff. Like, um, yeah, as a as a fan, casual fan, I and someone who right. I guess I can I, I still train at the highest level I possibly can, and I, I kind of pride myself on trying to imitate mm-hmm. some of these athletes and what they're doing. And I, I sort of wonder, like, when I watch our ski team and you see some results, and they're not as great uh, on the male side sometimes, and we have guys in the 50s or 60s, and I just go, are those guys, like, not as fit as other countries or not as good at skiing or, you know, like, cause it's, you just start to go like, no, that can't be like, these guys work super hard. They're super athletic. They're great at skiing. Like what's the difference or, or is it just a matter that it's such thick competition that the difference between the guy getting third and the difference between the guy getting 50th really isn't that much. You know, what, what is it? How how would you, how would you address that question to the casual fan who might just go on a whim? Oh, the the U S ski team stinks at cross country skiing you know like how, how do you how right. would you answer that right, right. yeah and and that's totally I, I think i hope that's not the perception but i don't doubt that it may be um i mean and it is true the men's team has had a lot less success than the women's team at least in distance racing um but i think you already put your finger on it i mean the, the gaps are pretty tiny and the difference between the guys on the podium and the guys finishing 50th are really not that great um, right. so i think it's just a very dense field and, you know, it's just a really, really hard thing to, to sort of fight your way through that, you know, that mass of, you know, skiers to, to get yourself up to that higher level. And it's, you know, it seems like the skiers who, who get there have been, you know, have had just sort of like some breakthroughs, um, you know, that, that sort of helps them believe and have the confidence like, okay, well, if they got into the top 10 and, you know, now they're able to start doing that more often, or if not get into the top 10 every weekend, then at least get into the top 30 on a pretty consistent basis. Cause now they know that they are good enough to do that. Um, but yeah, I just think, again, it's just, it's very dense. Um, and I think that there's very little margin for error, whether it's skis or whether it's how you hit your training or whether it's how you responded to traveling over to Europe, you know? So I don't know from, from, sitting here on the outside having never raced or coached right. in Europe, then that would be my, that would be my instinctive answer. Um, I don't think that it has anything to do with these guys not being good skiers or not working hard enough. I think it's just the bar is quite high and, um, you know, it's, it's just very hard to break through. Um, but I am really curious to see how that plays out with this next generation, because I don't think we've ever really had a, a generation that's had so much success at the world junior level. I mean, I'm quite certain we've not had so much success. So, um, these guys are coming in with a level of achievement and hopefully confidence that will help them make that transition much more successfully than, than, uh, previous generations have. Um, well, to kind of test your, your thought too, of, like the, if the mental side of it really is right. Like, like you said, maybe if, maybe it is, all it is is someone finishes top 10 once and they go, wow, I can do it. And that mental confidence was all it took to make the breakthrough from being sitting in the pack at 50th to since the margin is so tight, all it was was a mental thing. Whereas I I think sometimes we're fed, you know, that 
that it's a it's very thick field there's very fine margins and the difference is equipment or the difference is wax or, right, right, right. right and and i think mm. i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the sport and and actually it'll be interesting also going into next year um i don't follow it super hard but even just seeing that like the norwegian team had to cut a lot of their budget so if that's a true argument you know maybe that right. will be reflected in the results right. now i i don't know or or like what you're saying maybe if the if the if it's a confidence thing well this next generation is coming in with more confidence than we've seen in the past and we'll kind of see how that plays out but it does make mm-hmm. it kind of hard i think to follow the sport as a casual fan because it is hard to understand and then like you said We've never been there. We've never coached there. We haven't been there as athletes. And then it takes place in another country. So, right, like, right. that's that's a built-in disadvantage, too. So, um, for our athletes, oh, for sure. I mean, any of those guys will talk about it. You know, any, any you know, on the men's and women's side, um, anyone who's not a World Cup regular will talk about how challenging it is to go over there and race for the first time. Or even if you haven't, even if you've been there many times, um, just, you know, if you're not in Europe constantly, if you're not a real veteran where you've spent the whole winter there, you know, the ones, you know, who will get, yeah. you know, a start based off the Super Tour or something like that, they'll come up for a couple weekends and just talk about how challenging it is to, to sort of get comfortable over there. So I think there's just so many different challenges that we don't really see from the outside that make it so much harder for those athletes. Um, and, you know, hopefully some of those barriers will start to come down for, for the next generation. We'll, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Cedar Skier Podcast. We'll see you next time.